The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Guillotine in the Mists edition. It's Wednesday, May 23rd, 2018. On today's show, you may have noticed we've by and large given up talking about the latest blockbuster. Well, one block has been busted so huge we had to talk about it. The biggest of them all, the royal wedding, uh, was this past weekend. We're going to discuss it with Simon Doonan. And then a giant of American letters has died. We discussed the not untroubled legacy, I would say, of Tom Wolfe, uh, co-creator of New Journalism, author of Bonfire of the Vanities, The Right Stuff, many, many iconic American essays. We'll do that with Slate's wonderful book critic, Laura Miller. And finally, why does everyone suddenly understand how much they love a TV show only when it gets canceled? We discussed this ancient philosophical conundrum via the specific example of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Joining me today is uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello, Steve. Hey. In studio. Is that me in the flesh? All together. I thought it might be. Love it. Fully clothed and ready to roll. Uh, Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic. I'm taking that to mean that you usually record pantless from home. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that was a weird comment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually like, I'm usually respectably clad for a person who works from their own home at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. So Let no me... pants. <laughs> blanky. I'm under Jersey. a blanky. Jersey. There's Jersey involved is what you're saying. There might be. The, 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 you've got your knits, not wovens. I, <laughs> God, I, don't e- I don't even know what that means, <laughs> but I'll say yes. <laughs> uh, all right, let's dig in. All right. Well, we're delighted, of course, to be joined once again by Simon Dunin, who is creative ambassador for Barney's, author of a forthcoming book uh, called Soccer Style. Simon, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm hanging in there. But uh, what I want to know is tell me a little bit about Soccer Style. Oh, it's a celebration of the culture around soccer that's built up over the centuries, literally, because it's uh, over 150 years old, soccer, especially in England. Um, And it celebrates everything from Lamborghinis to haircuts to tattoos, wags, just the crazy culture that's built up around soccer, obviously including players from Beckham, Ronaldo, Messi. Um, It's definitely a celebration of, of fun and excess and tattoos and I love it. Can I extract a promise from you to come back on the podcast when it's out and talk oh, both it I'll and World Cup? I'll just stay here until it comes around. <laughs> We've got a little bunk. <laughs> Caught. Um, all right. Well, the royal wedding. I happened to be in, in a hospital visiting um, um, my dad um, when the royal wedding came on. And I saw something. Uh, my, my, I, I have a uh, unlimited reservoir of indifference towards the royals and the fact that they marry. <laughs> Outmarry, intermarry, doesn't matter to me. Couldn't care less. But it was an amazing thing to watch this ecosystem and a hospital is nothing if not an assemblage of people from every background and social class. I mean, the most super educated, technically competent people in the world, the most uh, empathetic, uh, extraordinary caregivers in the world, um, people pushing brooms and mops. I mean, it's, an, you know, and then in addition to everyone who comes into it by necessity and every single fucking head in the joint was turned to a TV because there are now TVs everywhere in there. It captivated everybody. And finally, I got sucked up into it. Um, talk a little bit about why in general this is true, but why specifically in this one, it seems to be, uh, uh, you know, an eyeball magnet as never, you know, totally unprecedented in the intensity of interest. Um, well, it, it is. It was unusual the amount of feverish interest, but there's so many points of entry with this particular um, royal wedding. Um, I think if you're interested in history. This is a very significant milestone. You know, this beautiful African-American girl entering the royal family, um, unprecedented and um, celebrated in a way that was very touching and romantic. And um, you had the regular the regular montage of the royal family with the queen and Beatrice and Eugenie and all the Fergie was even there. Um, so it was it was fascinating and interesting on so many different levels and musically great, gorgeous. 
Um, the speeches were less predictable than usual. We had that wonderful preacher um, letting rip. It was fantastic. Um, I don't know. There were so many facets of it that were riveting. Yeah, it was. It seems to me it was a balance of things were not supposed to like these atavistic things the royal family and princess stories combined with these things were obliged and should like uh you know uh, racial openness and uh, progressive values um uh and so everyone got to indulge in the guilty pleasure this time but i think you got to remember for most people it would never occur to them that they should feel guilty about watching the royal wedding Too true. i mean my grandmother used to stand I remember when Princess Anne got married and my, we watched it, my grandmother stood in the living room the whole time out of respect for the royal family. So most people, it would never occur to them that they should feel guilty never. about it or that it wasn't romantic and fabulous. And then they're seeing possibly themselves with this girl from, you know, a broken home, but she's made it. You know, there was so many... Um, interesting aspects to it. Mm -hmm. I was appealing to the culture snobs that make up our audience, but uh, <laughs> Julia, take it away. You have surely more to say about this than I do. I love Meghan Markle. I'm not sure if I love her because she's a sweet, innocent steward of true love or because she's the canniest operator this side <laughs> of a cannery. Of Kate Middleton. But, well, just, I mean, I and I don't mean to you know, be saying something grotesque about women climbing to princessdom or whatever, but just like, I love her story. She, she, she's, seems like she's tried it all. You know, she was like a suitcase girl on the game show and she had a lifestyle blog and she was on suits on the USA network. And, and, um, she just seems so American to me in so many ways. Um, so far removed from what Americans imagine the British upper classes to be of sort of everybody having a secret lineage in their head of who's descended from the Earl of such and such and whether they're allowed to talk to the mere pedestrian baroness of so and so or whatever, you know, I'm sure I have the things, the order all wrong in terms of the hierarchy. Um, she just she seems like the good version of America, like, per, well, there's per, a very I, you're 100% right. Compare her to Wallace Simpson. Right. You know, this dreadful, you know, fashion plate who was so um, snobby, a Nazi sympathizer. You know, that is the sort of Wallace Simpson, this sort of ultimate snob, royal fetishist, blah, 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 blah. And then we have Meghan Markle, who's, um, you know, very straightforward, sweet, well-intentioned. She doesn't, attractive. Right. She doesn't seem as though she lived her life in an effort to bag a prince. <laughs> well, you know that we all love Meghan Markle. And you know who really loves her? The royal family. Yeah. Because they, their life, their everyday existence is a desperate attempt to stay relevant. And to, you know, the guillotine is always in the distance, <laughs> you know, with mists swirling around it and <laughs> Madame Defarge knitting in front of it. Um, so this is the most extraordinary gift to them because, um, and they, I think they appreciate that on a fairly genuine level. Like, we're always struggling to be relevant. And here, organically, beautifully, romantically, is, is this gift to them that is making, the, helping the royal family stay relevant and not become the horrifying anachronism that you clearly think they are. Well, I love that we went from everyone loves the royal family. It would occur to nobody to have a backlash against them to the guillotine suddenly surfacing in the conversation. <laughs> it, uh, the Republican spirit burns. Uh, oh, my God. Like, um, the royal family, the queen is very well respected by even anti-monarchists. They think, well, she's a public servant. She always did her job. She was self-denying and it was a life of service. After that, it gets kind of crazy and dodgy. So they've had huge PR challenges. And so Meghan Markle with her genuine relationship with Prince Harry, it's like, it's incredible mm. what it's going to do for them, I think. Tina, what did you make of the whole thing? <laughs> I mean, as as somebody who always has my eye on the guillotine with the mist swirling around it, 
<laughs> you know, I just I think I just have maybe this is like you, Stephen. I know this is like June Thomas, and we've had her on the show and talked about this. But I just have this instinctive allergy to royalty and the royal family and all that it represents. As sweet as the wedding was, and as much as it seemed like two young people who love each other are getting married, and how can you be against that? And the ceremony was extraordinarily well done. But something about those commoners in the streets, I watched on BBC, on the BBC, because I wanted to see how are they seeing it in Britain, right? And uh, and that in itself was fascinating, just the framing of it, so different than a big jubilant event like that would be in the US. Of course, we wouldn't have an event exactly like that by definition. But the fact that, okay, it takes place in Windsor, right? This tiny town. So the entire population of London can't turn out, but there are these commoners who were invited into the streets of Windsor. And I'm sure we have to go Rent through massive security. <laughs> right, exactly. And they get there because of their civic virtue. You know, the anchors on BBC were saying, well, the commoners that are here, I don't know if they use the word commoners. That's probably an unfashionable word now, but that's what they were. And they had earned their place in Windsor, allowed to cheer and wave Union Jacks because of the service <laughs> to their <laughs> local <laughs> communities or whatever. There was just something about it was just very very clear in the choreography of the whole event that um, in order to have this you know adulation of the royal family with or without you know this new member who may change things up in some way for their PR in order to have that you had to have this base of you know cheering nobodies with union jacks and this whole side of it it's just it was it was present in every moment to me. I wasn't able, in other words, to sort of Calgon take me away the romance of the royal wedding. I was just always aware that it is undergirded, as you say, by this you know this threat of of uh, royal violence and the kind of um, I don't know just the 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 unwashed masses cheering away outside the cathedral. Oh, I agree with you. It's all very dodgy. You know, um, the whole idea of the monarchy, these people inheriting vast tracts of land for no particular reason and blah, blah, blah. But I think if you if you are British, you kind of learn to have those two things coexist. Like, you know, you can have extreme skepticism about the need for monarchy, but you can also tune in and watch um, Elton John arriving at the world's <laughs> wedding and they, be interested in her frock. They, those thing, things end up coexisting, I think, if you're sort of used to it. You think, ugh, can, why Since, are they since there? you are our fashion expert, can, can you tell us what you thought of the frock when we're on the frock? Um, I thought um, that it was really simple and beautiful and it... She's a very attractive girl. She's beautiful, gorgeous. So it sort of was cut across the shoulders to sort of showcase her beauty, her makeup. She's hardly seemed to be wearing any makeup. Did you notice that? Yeah, she that was great. Her face was even a little shiny. Yeah. You know, it wasn't even And bad. her hair was a little bit dégagé. Um, so the whole effort to bring informality into every aspect of the wedding, I think it was brought into that dress. The dress was really simple because she has to think about, okay, Kate's was sort of Elizabethan in structure, very like that into the waist, very tight into the waist with a sort of almost like a farthingale, what they call it. It was very Elizabeth I. And um, so she can't do that. She has to be different. And the way they made it different was there was this, I didn't see many darts or anything in that dress. It was just very simple. Um, it probably didn't take that long to make, but the veil was quite detail the lace in the veil so it was a, like a real effort to be simple 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 with a very bold tiara like an alice band so the simplicity of it i thought was very charming and um it wasn't some painfully couture garment that 500 nuns went blind making it, <laughs> you know, it wasn't one of those there was something very easy and beautiful about it yeah i loved it i thought it was uh elegant how how plain it was and how i i found myself i think the way the guillotine was swirling in the midst of my mind is that it, i mean how impossible to be a bride any any wedding is a performance right i remember planning my wedding with with my beloved who does not like to be the center of attention and just being like what a weird day this is you are writing directing and starring in a play for everybody you love, the subject of which is your most intimate relationship and the future of your whole life. So like even if you're not marrying Prince Harry, weddings are fucking weird, right? And you're 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 engaging in pageantry and you're performing. But I did feel aware watching them as she sort of gave him coy smiles and batted her eyelashes, a little bit of the performance mm -hmm. of like the sweet sure. demure bride 
and just like what a weird what a weird position they have found themselves in. My one disappointment, I expected Beatrice and Eugenie to show up with these elaborate fascinators and they'd gotten so much flack from the last time that they've gotten gun shy and they were wearing these incredibly demure, un- unmemorable fascinators, which I think there's a, there's a lesson there for the press. You know, when Bjork shows up in the swan dress, if you make fun of her, you're going to say goodbye to the era when girls wore fun, creative, impulsive things. So, you know, I kept warning people at the time, make fun of Beatrice and Eugenie, and they'll show up wearing these little like Eastern European from the 1950s fascinators. Um, So, yeah. Did anybody have a good hat? Who was the Um, best hat? I thought Camilla's hat was great. I always want the hats to be very over the top and very insane. And that's very much an English tradition. And and weeks ago, somebody was interviewing me about Meghan Markle and said, what do you think is the biggest challenge for her? And I said, she's a very competent girl. She's not going to experience much of this as a challenge. However, wearing hats, uh-huh. she'll have to get used to that. And you have to figure out what to do with your hair, you know, you get your hair done and then you cram this thing on top of it. It's a specific thing that she is going to be required to do. And clearly, she's getting used to it. But my point was um, it, that whole thing of the peanut gallery can really tamp things down in a way that's a bit of a bummer. You know, oh, yeah, make fun of Beatrice and Eugenie. But then they show up looking completely nondescript the next year. So you didn't really accomplish much. It's true. Bjork's swan dress was so important to fashion history, and only now is it getting its due, right? It should have been the beginning of something, but they all got gun-shy from hate, online trolling and hate. Yeah, that so tradition got tamped down. That's why red carpet now is very conventional, and not it's hard to think of things to say, you know? Wah-wah. Um, yeah, Simon, since we have you here, I wanted to hear something, if you could, about the tradition of the day dress, um, as opposed to, I mean, the, just the, the, the type of clothes that were worn seemed so demure and old-fashioned compared to what would be worn on any red carpet in the Hollywood entertainment world. And I assume that's in part because when you're around royalty, you just dress more modestly and, and demurely. But it was all long sleeves, you know, hemlines at the knee or below. There were some really, really great outfits, but it was a completely different style of dressing than you would find at, you know, obviously the Met Gala or something that's all about showing off your originality. Absolutely. Like you don't want to be seen as a self-indulgent fashion eccentric. And you also don't want to look too sexy. You know, most brides now when the average wedding, there's some decollete, there's a corset, a bustier, you know, we're seeing some body. Um, But no, no one's going to do that with the queen sitting there. You know, like you have to... You have to look like you're ready for history, you know, not not ready for. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> fill in the blank. <laughs> On that note, uh, Simon, you've promised to come back and we're going to hold you to it when the World Cup starts uh, in order to talk about your book, uh, Soccer Style. Thank you so much for coming in and talking Royals. Oh, merci beaucoup. All right. Well, before we go any further, I am convinced that we have business. Julia, what? What do you got? Just a just a mite today. First, a note that our top secret summer getaway on June 2nd in Rensselaer County, New York is sold out. Thank you, intrepid wanderers. How many people want to get abducted by Steve Metcalf? <laughs> All the people. I love it. I love it. It's going to be so fun, I'm sure. Um, if you are still interested in going, there there's a slight chance we may be able to release a few more tickets closer to the date. So you can keep an eye out on slate.com slash live. The rest of you... We can't wait. Dana and I, I don't know, are we going to wear silk blindfolds all the way up on the Amtrak? And I'm then not sure what the end revealed? game is with secrecy. <laughs> it's going to look more and more like actual abduction, like balaclavas <laughs> coming out of duffel bags. <laughs> yeah, it's unclear how long we're going to remain in the dark. But we look forward to seeing you all in no doubt verdant climbs, unless maybe we're going to some kind of factory warehouse. Who knows? The Polytechnic Institute? Not sure. <laughs> anyway, we'll see you all there. Uh, on June 2nd. Second up, it's that time of year. Spring is beginning to spring. Memorial Day is around the corner. And that means we are on the verge of what season, Dana? Summer. And what do we do during the summer, Steve? Strut. Yes. <laughs> it is time for the gajillionth annual Summer Strut playlist. Uh, we are now taking submissions. Please send us songs you like to strut to. Veteran listeners will know that we 
love to take a Catholic approach here and embrace old songs, new songs, pop songs, not songs. Non-American songs. We love non-American songs. We love songs of any era. Uh, the, the resulting Summer Strut playlist last summer was so great. I am still listening to it almost every day. Like I, I took my top hits off of that playlist and it's become my favorite go-to listen. Um, and included that great Impeach the President song from the Honey Dippers, a weird deep cut of 70s soul, uh, and uh, introduced me to some some wonderful pop confections from recent years as well. So send songs that make you strut to us. Here's how to do it. On our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, wonderful production assistant Daniel Schrader will start a thread saying post your summer strut songs here. Please post in the comments of that thread. That's the best way to do it, easiest for him in, in compiling our listening. If you're a Facebook skeptic, we convinced you to ditch it. You can also tweet at the Slate Cult Fest. Our handle is at Slate Cult Fest. And use the hashtag, hashtag summer strut. So tweet your recommendations at hashtag summer strut or post at facebook.com slash culture fest in the thread that Daniel creates. Uh, I'm so excited to strut with you guys. It's time. Yeah, let's gather that list. And then in Slate Plus today, the most pressing question of our time, Yanni versus Laurel. That's my best imitation of the robot. We'll discuss to hear segments on Yanni and or Laurel and to get ad free podcasts. Sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support the journalism we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and the rest of our portfolio and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, onward. Tom Wolfe, as I said at the top of the show, is a giant of American letters. I mean, arguably the inventor, but certainly one of the inventors of new journalism, went on to have a best-selling career as a novelist. He coined so many phrases that have entered the language. Uh, uh, I mean, essentially, Laura, the title of any one of his books uh, became a cornerstone of the popular language, idiomatic language. I mean, Bonfire of the Vanities, The Right Stuff, Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. There's an iconic ring to almost everything you wrote. Radical Chic. Radical Chic is um, the classic. Yeah. And then The Me Decade being one of his uh, uh, famous coinages as well. Uh, famous for wearing a white suit, a dandy, uh, a raconteur, a absolutely brilliant pyrotechnic writer. I taught a, a long-form nonfiction class at UPenn once, went around a room at the end of the semester, said, who would you most like to write like of the people that we've read this semester? It's split very evenly between Joan Didion and Tom Wolfe. <laughs> Uh, he was a great, but not according to gender, or no? <laughs> it was very according to gender. <laughs> With any crossover, though, a little bit. Uh, some crossover, mostly in the um, uh, in the p- uh, person of the professor who uh, was a serious vote for Didion over Wolf. Um, but anyway, um, uh, an immensely influential original voice in American letters. But Laura Miller, Slate's book critic, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you. You have a wonderful thesis that for all of that, his most influential contribution to American letters is an essay that he published in Harper's in 1989 called Stalking the Billion-Footed Beast. I want to get to that thesis, but I first want to know what your relationship to Wolf's work in general is. Uh, I am a, ca- a casual reader of Tom Wolf, not much of a fan of his fiction, not able to really get through most of it, um, but an admirer of his journalism, although um, also a little um, leery of it at times, which uh, a great piece that Slate ran by Elon Green pointed out that he maybe wasn't the most rigorous in his journalistic practices. Um, as, you know, the f- many, many fabulous details that he was able to get would tend to suggest. A little too so. fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to your thesis. Okay. What is it about this specific 1989 essay, Stalking the Billion-Footed Beast, that you think is so central to his legacy? Well, specifically, I would say that he had f- much more influence as a writer on nonfiction and on journalism than he did as a novelist on fiction. And my piece is really about the influence that he had on fiction. Now, when he wrote this piece, and there's this kind of 
big, you know, in the past 40 or so years, there's this kind of weird tradition of people writing these wither the novel pieces in Harper's that then everybody talks about and they become very legendary and and it, and it determines how people relate to the books that they publish. Um, but he had already published Bonfire of the Vanities and it had already been very successful. And so he had sort of to back that up this assertion that he wanted to make about where American fiction was, specifically the American novel, and where he thought it should be and how Bonfire of the Vanities was the right stuff. And and what everybody else was doing was crap. And so um, so his argument was for what he called the big, and that's it was always big, the big realist social novel about America in the current moment that dealt with class and race, not so much gender because, you know, he was oblivious to that. And his take on race was kind of retrograde as well. But at least he recognized that it was a huge issue. And, um, And the way the culture was changing and hippies, so the counterculture, um, he thought somebody needed to write this sort of big 19th century realistic novel, uh, like 19th century British realism or early 20th century. He, He liked all these early 20th century realist American novelists that nobody really reads anymore. And, uh, you know, he, he, he thought someone should be writing that instead of what people were mostly writing or what was what were the sort of trends in American fiction at that time, which were metafiction, which was sort of like on the outs and sort of minimalist short stories, which was sort of in, in the rising trend. And he, you know, poured contempt on those um, as sort of snobby or 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 small time and said why don't people do this and and they should they should do reporting that's what novelists mm-hmm. should do it's a little bit like that joke that that people make about surgeons where whatever's wrong with you they think you must need surgery or you know if mm-hmm. your hammer hammer everything looks, looks like, a, like nail. a nail um he was a journalist so he thought that novelists should be more like journalists and he was he he was grinding another axe as well which is this question that perennially attends Tom Wolfe about his legacy relative to his talent relative to his contemporaries Updike, Mailer, and Roth. And and John Irving slides in there a little bit because there was this moment in the 80s in the wake of Bonfire of the Vanities and the argument Wolfe was explicitly making around it about the great social novel in the vein of Thackeray. This was aimed also at those guys who he felt had become navel-gazing armchair figures who weren't going out into contemporary America uh, anymore. They were exploring their own degraded, you know, white male psyches. And um, and they fought back famously, and then he fought back against their fighting back. And essentially what he's saying is, no, my Bonfire of the Vanities is going to be around a lot longer than fill in the blank Deer Park or, you know, um, uh, Cider House Rules or, uh, you know, Rabbit Run or whatever. I mean, uh, how do you think he fared in that? I don't think Bonfire of the Vanities, let alone the novels that he published afterwards, which were successful, but, you know, each one was less successful than the one before. Um, I don't think that they're really books that people are going to be reading in 20 years or that even that many people are reading now. So, um, but I do think that he did indirectly wind up inspiring a big fictional explosion in the 2000s where people did attempt to deal with, to, to write fatter books that had a lot more characters from many different walks of life and that attempted to sort of represent the way we live now, which is the famous thing he mentions, Thackeray, and I think, but why not Trollope? Because yeah. that's exactly what Trollope did with the way we live now. It was about rich people and poor people and these finan- this financial... I mean, it was exactly like a Tom Wolfe novel, um, except that it was less sort of cynical and cartoonish. But... Um, but uh, uh, you know, there was there were there was obviously Infinite Jest, the corrections, um, Jeffrey Eugenides's um, Middlesex, White Teeth maybe. White Teeth is de- I mean she's not American, but I think right. White Teeth is probably the closest to what he was mm-hmm. 
um, sort of advocating for, but she just has so much more heart than he does, and she's just so much more talented than he was. Yeah, I have yeah, to say, I have that, to agree that um, that you know it, it was a weird way that he kind of presented like this brief that he couldn't actually fulfill in a really satisfying way, and the journalism thing was kind of like a like a a decoy, you know. It, it wasn't. I, I don't think any of those writers who wrote those the big social novels of the 2000s were going out and doing a ton of journalism. Right, but the but the suggestion, I think I think decoy is a good term there because the idea was the journalism is what helped him grapple with the massive set of social changes that were transforming both American society and the individual American experience, the sort of experience that might be at the heart of American yeah. novels. And so for him, it was like, that's how I understand that. That should be the subject of novels. Everyone else should do journalism, and then I will make them understand those things. That should be the subject of novels. And then the actually skilled novelists were like, what if we use fiction writing to <laughs> respond to some of those things? Um, but but I think that was such an interesting insight in your essay that, in fact, we did see this wave of novels mm-hmm. that were more Dickensian and full of stuffed full of people from all walks of life who, who were grappling in various ways with the change in their experiences. The thing that he zeroed in on, which is the thing that he's so good, is that people wanted to read novels like mm-hmm. that more than they wanted to right. read Robert Coover's Spanking the Maid or like many, many really depressing, enigmatic short stories about um, glum people <laughs> in, in the in rural America, you know. <laughs> On fishing trips. It's just like not really like there like there was a vogue for that and some of those stories are really great. But it's a kind it was an appetite that kind of yeah. wore itself out. Glum people on fishing trips. <laughs> <laughs> but so then you're saying your argument is more is not so much that he that people were going and reading the billion footed beast and changing their writing style because of it, but that he accurately predicted something that was happening, a trend that was it's coming anyway. It's so hard to know. And but I think that it everybody it got under everybody's skin in a way like people recognized that he was talking about something that they wanted to read and write even if they didn't want to do what he did um you know write actually the novels that he wrote and when you know a, you know a few like less than 10 years later Jonathan Franzen wrote this essay also published in Harper's uh, which is basically him being like more of a depressive personality than than Tom Wolfe's, it was like, oh my God, how can we even write a novel anymore? You know, he he was like, when he did a longer version of it for a collection, he, he changed the title from Perchance to Dream to Why Bother? Mm. <laughs> but and he ended up with a kind of more upbeat ending. But the funny thing about that essay is it's a lot about his um, self-doubt, his wondering if there is even an audience for you know, a serious novel anymore, how he beat himself up trying to write a social novel, which is basically what Wolf was saying people should do, like how he wanted to do that, how he had written, his first novel was like that, it was about St. Louis. Um, It, you know, and he, but he was having all these problems with this mission that he had given himself, which is basically this Tom Wolf mission, even if in a footnote, he was made withering remarks about stalking the billion footed beast it was so he was so clearly responding to it in a way and and the funny thing about that essay is that it was not a manifesto for how what i'm going to do in my next novel is i'm going to write a big social novel it isn't actually that at all but it was completely interpreted that way and so when the, when the corrections was finally published everyone was like well now jonathan franzen is going to give us the big social novel that he promised even though he never did that and so it gives you a sense of how much that tom wolf essay you know the thing of him saying we really need this kind of novel and i'm going to give it you know, I'm going to do it. How that just conditioned how everybody saw 
fiction for for the next yeah. 20 years. I mean, another thing to remember about Bonfire of the Vanities is that it was a, a it was a New York City novel, quintessential New York City novel at the moment the city's reviving and what Wolf is showing you is exactly on what terms it's reviving the bond trader, you know, um, what he thinks of as the racial entrepreneur. Um, on and on and on. These kind of characters are reviving as social types in part because the city's reviving as a function of the 80s and financial sector returning and on and on and on and on. And we live with that legacy, that cosmopolitan revival, even if we don't specifically live with Wolf. And so for younger novelists, they're not living in the suburbs. They're not staring at their own navel. They now think of themselves as part of a milieu and they want to uh, depict it. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't throw out my Tom Wolf theory and find out whether <laughs> Laura Miller finds it plausible, along with my co-panelist, which is that he was a, a PhD student in American studies at Yale before he became a journalist, and apparently he had a road to Damascus moment when he read Thorsten Veblen, the famous American economist yeah. and sociologist, whose argument in theory of the leisure class, his most famous book, many other books, was that essentially we're creatures of status and status seekers, and this is the essentially driving almost monomaniacal hunger of all creatures, which is for um, recognition from their peers in the form of status and status seeking. And Wolf essentially just took that thesis and applied it to absolutely everything he encountered. And I think that's the source more than anything of the ignobility of his work in a way. It's very reductive as to people's ultimate motivations. People are essentially shallow. They essentially are servicing their own vanity and they service it by winning the approval of others, especially via money, fame, on and on. Um, and there's one marvelous exception, is he really believed in the um, astronauts, and he did not think they were status heroes, uh, status seekers. He thought they were heroes, and he wrote his best book, book by yeah. far, The Right Stuff. So if I want to send anyone to Tom Wolfe, I would send them there. I mean, you should certainly read Radical Sheet because it's cornerstone of the American imagination and an incredible performance. But it seems to me the right stuff was where he became a noble writer, which was a you know exception in the Irv. I fully endorse that theory. <laughs> this is the happiest moment of my life, Laura Miller. <laughs> I'm so glad to give it to you. <laughs> All right. Well, Laura, thank you so much for coming into the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, total pleasure as always. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a cop sitcom, a cop-com. It's been on the air since roughly 2013. It was co-created by Michael Schur, right? We know him from The Office and Parks and Rec, beloved, uh, templated, classically templated sitcoms. This one stars Andy Samberg as a lovable man-child cop and has a wonderful ensemble cast. We really wouldn't be talking, uh, Julia, about this show otherwise, but it's an example of a phenomenon, which is you know, nobody, nobody's going to really understand how much they love Bruce Springsteen or Bob Dylan until they keel over, right? <laughs> and then all of a sudden there's this outpouring of kind of, you know, I mean, only like almost like existential gratitude. Like the gift you gave us was so enormous. It, it formed a part of my, you know, kind of mental, moral furniture, whatever. And there's a corollary to the sitcom or, or TV show that, that doesn't have a huge mass following. It doesn't have a cultish following like Mad Men. And then the moment comes around and the network's like, enough is enough. This thing's just kind of puttering along. Let's cancel it. And there's this outpouring. And it's either rescued or isn't. It appears now in the case of Brooklyn Nine-Nine that the show is going to be uh, revived on NBC. They've put in a new order. So I want to get into both things. Like, what are the raffish, sort of underappreciated charms of Brooklyn Nine-Nine? But this whole phenomenon of only not knowing what you got until it's gone. But before we do that, let's listen to a clip. Halloween is the worst. Everyone's drunk, wearing a mask, and carrying a fake gun. Plus, all the girls think they have to dress sexy. I know, that is the worst. Please make them stop. I passed a slutty tree on the way here. Who wants to have sex with a tree? Was it a maple? Was it a maple? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're laughing. I mean, it's... Mike sure has the goods, right? He knows how to keep this 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 genre going and fun uh, and great. But um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine wasn't a show I interacted with over the years. Was it one of your staples? Well, as I said when we sat down to tape this morning, like, didn't we talk about Brooklyn Nine-Nine when it debuted and we all watched some and discussed it on the show and none of us could remember whether we <laughs> had? <Nope. laughs> no, I'm sure we haven't. I'm 100% sure we okay, haven't. Okay, okay. I must have. I watched the first few episodes for some reason at some point. 
And I, the only reason I ever consume any culture is to talk about it with you guys. So I assumed that was I the case. I think we did. I and mean, I feel like it was our occasion to grapple with the Andy Samberg phenomenon. If so, I was not on the show because I, I think I would remember it because I like it. Unlike you guys, aren't you, aren't you just about to trash Brooklyn Nine-Nine, no, even though you laughed at the maple tree joke? No, no, I wasn't about to trash it. But I like, you know, when it was canceled and then revived... Uh, it made me think of all the other shows that you only discover how many people and notable people, Lin-Manuel Miranda type people, love and adore them, uh, you know, with the crying and rending of garments that happens when the axe comes down. And so I thought, you know, we've never really looked at it, It's or, or, or we did, but it was before it became whatever it became. Let's take a look. And I kind of anticipated falling down a rabbit hole of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and being like, what a delightful show, multiracial ensemble cast, a fundamentally liberal at heart show set in the in the world of cops in the in the 20 teens what a telling document uh meaning abounds <laughs> no no none of that and, and it's funny i mean i'm a huge mike sure partisan and not just because he's the author of a recent and wonderful slate cover story uh and just generally like a great and smart and funny human but like parks and recreation to me did seem to be broadly about women trying to do things even though it was jokes and Aziz Ansari and Treat Yourself and and Ron Swanson and you know it was just as goofy and dada an ensemble as this in some ways the 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 steely uh question of Amy Poehler and her vim and the kind of peculiar lovable unlovability of that character made it feel like it amounted to being about something and just having Andy Samberg, the wag, as the heart of your goofy ensemble makes it totally uh, devoid of any attempted meaning, which has its own pleasures. Like, totally enjoyed watching episodes, gobbled them up, watched like six to eight of them. And as with all sitcoms, I was like just rooting for the romance to come along and sweep me off my feet in little dribs and drabs. But um, yeah, I did not feel like there was a ton of there there. Dana, is it good? Do you love it because of the there or because I mean, of the lack of there? I guess the lack of there. I mean, I'm in the awkward position of I want to rise to its passionate defense, but I've only seen three and a half episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have chapter and verse to cite you. But I did find it. Well, raffish is a really good word. You're right. There's there's something pleasantly inconsequential and just sort of goofy and fun about it. The sitcom that it most reminded me of, and although I've seen some Parks and Rec, I did not follow the whole thing, is WKRP in Cincinnati, (laughs) which was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid and was just such an idea of what an adult workplace would be like. I mean, it's a workplace comedy, right? It's not really a crime show or a cop show in any way. The the cop activity is extremely extraneous to all the episodes that I've seen. And uh, and it's really just more of a workplace comedy. And I don't know, it just has that loosey-goosey WKRP vibe, Mm -hmm, right? That was also like this diverse office, but it wasn't always about social issues and social yep. problems and there were people in the office that were sort of made fun of but everybody really loved each other it's just, and there's sort of like the two cute women with the two very different styles right yeah I mean it's amazing how durable the form is it obviously goes all the way back to I mean, Mary Tyler Moore probably before that uh, the one and KRP then but then the one I thought the bridge you know, between this and KRP might be news radio, uh, which mm-hmm. I you know loved I think there's some there's a specific so the workplace is almost completely incidental in some way and you drape around at this ensemble cast and it's you know people forced to get along with one another you know uh, on, on a non-affinity basis but deep down they actually love each other which is funny because it seems to me first of all that kind of workplace is disappearing um it, it, it is it's unkillable by anything except for the massive structural changes in the economy that are in fact going to kill it over the next 10 to 20 years so there's already kind of a nice little sepia you know, fringe around it of nostalgia. I mean, I couldn't believe that this is still going on. I mean, I guess there will be police precincts even when the robots, you know, take all of our jobs. But um, I, there's something a little, am I wrong? Like it's a little bit of a, it's almost a little bit of a chore to get through it in a way that the rhythms are so familiar. It's like going to your, see your personal trainer more than it is like experiencing something especially fresh. Well, I also think it raises the question of what is the bar for interesting TV right now? Like in a moment when to be a buzzy TV show, you have to be either like a kitchen 
sinkily broad mystery that's sending everybody down into the deep rabbit holes of Reddit to like figure out whatever the heck they're figuring out about Westworld right now. Or, I don't know, just groundbreaking in some way by featuring some subject we haven't seen before, by messing with the form, by saying things that are serious or dark or unexpected. Uh, Like what it takes to break through is like the TV show everybody cares about right now, just given the glut of TV means that if you just hit like a, you know, a, a cracking double and it's it you know I, my baseball metaphor is falling apart <laughs> to help anyway whatever if you like do something quite good in the old mode yeah everyone's just kind of like yeah all right great you kind of get taken for granted and you don't get the hype and then it turns out that the thing that people love from tv which is just like turn on that faucet of comfortable company oh what are the hijinks the office is getting up to today people do develop that relationship and still care about it then you get the outcry. And then because of the the glut of television making that's happening right now, you actually can save a show from the dead in a way that you did not used to be able to. All right. Well, as I alluded to at the top of the segment, uh, there's more than just the show at stake here. It's the fact that maybe in the age of social media or, uh, you know, you know, narrow casting, an impassioned minority of the viewing audience can fall in love with a TV show and beg for its return even after it's been canceled. This is what happened here. The network was responsive. I mean, what do you make of that, Dana? I found it sort of heartening. I mean, even as a, as a non-fan at the time, I, I can understand the fandom now. But even before I knew that I, if I personally would care about the show at all or not, just seeing a bunch of people get up and pledge you know, their loyalty and love for their show and be joined together in the sadness that it's gone and for that to actually work. Of course, then I found myself thinking, well, where were you when Bunheads went off the air, Lin-Manuel? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like we all have shows in our past that right. we would like to be have been able to get up on that bandwagon and bring them back. And if social media enables that and, you know, the getting some celebrity voices behind it helps, like, why not? I, in other words, I found the story of its revival kind of heartening even yeah. before I knew if I cared about the show at all. I find it heartening, but also so alien, right? Like, I feel like the cultural era in which I grew up, the the heartless suits who determined what was on the air were uh, unfeeling and responsive only to, you know, the advertising dollar. And if they decided that your sweet niche show that only like smart, goofy Sandberg fan nerds watched and smart, goofy Sandberg fan nerds was too small a demographic to support, you know, the the lifelong pledge of PepsiCo, then you're shit out of luck, kid. Like, sorry that you like Andy Sandberg. Too bad your tastes don't match the American mainstream. <laughs> and now it's just like I can't. Can you imagine growing up in a world where that's just not how you feel about providers of culture? Like it, the relationship that the average TV watcher has to these suits yeah. in this bubble where people make so many shows. They make shows for all these niche audiences. The question of like what's a success and what counts as a hit. And you don't, really you don't yeah. like, you're not oppressed as a, as a like cultural sidebar because you, because your taste is like Mike Schur shows starring Andy Samberg. Right. You, you, you feel oppressed because it's canceled. Oh, Fox, it's moving a different direction. They got Thursday Night Football. And then you're like, don't, please, we love it. And everyone's like, okay, 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 okay. We'll move it to NBC. It's fine. Don't worry, don't Wait, worry, don't worry. Like, but is what it is unusual? That? Like, has that happened on a lot of other shows? It's, I mean, it happened to the Mindy Project. They got canceled on NBC and moved to Hulu. It happened to, and then it happened with Community, which did a bunch of seasons on TV and then its final season on Yahoo. So this thing of like beloved niche comedy project is toast. Mm-hmm. Oh wait, no, it's back for the comedy Roddy. Like that's a now a phenomenon. Mm. You know, uh, when uh, Julia, it occurred to me when you were talking that, that there's, you know, pre-internet fat, you know, pre-fat pipe internet, pre-social media. Um, it's true. You had this, you had, incredibly limited real estate on the networks. You had three channels, five channels, whatever it was, and so many primetime slots. You know, uh, you know, pre-digital musical distribution, you had record companies, they're only going to ship so, so many pieces of vinyl. I mean, we live, it's like a Darwinian c- counterfactual, like we live surrounded by the ghosts of species that never came into existence or never fully evolved. 
And uh, it's like you think about all those moments when something that might that something that became iconic might not have existed um, is sort of the flip side of it. Like Cheers coming to the end of its first season, literally the lowest rated show on primetime television. I mean, it was, but it would have been you could have killed off all of that extraordinary thing that happened after. And I'm so I, there's an anecdote I tell my kids, and I'm not sure what lesson is drawn from it, but the Beatles auditioning they go to nine record companies every one of them says no you know these kind of teeny bopper groups are done and george martin just happened to have made these spike jones records back in the 50s and 60s he was a master of the studio and the sound effects of a studio and what you could do really in the comedy genre and because those had been huge unexpected hits he had a budget over at emi which was not a rock and roll label the beatles auditioned for him and he says no but then they start shitting around with each other in the studio. And he had asked them before they started recording, is there anything that you don't like? Like, are the microphones in the right place? And what he meant was, like, are you comfortable? And George Harrison had said, well, to begin with, there's your tie. And it's like, had George Harrison not made that joke, right? The Beatles would be one of those counterfactual ghosts, you know? Like, how close it can come. And we live in this real world, in this different world now, a change world now, where there are no counterfactual ghosts anymore. Hmm. You know, there's there's a venue for everything. And um, I guess that's a plus, right? I guess that's a gain. I mean, I think there's still things that don't get made. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Have you been on YouTube lately? I mean, everyone gets their Well, just just since I'm married to and live with someone who who works on stuff that does and doesn't get made. I know. There's there's still still people who forget to insult the tie somewhere along the way. I just wanted to say counterfactual. Don't (laughs) don't care whether it's true or not. All right. Can we wrap this one? Yeah, but I would send people to Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I feel like it's not getting enough love. It surprised me with how sweet and fun and what a nice just mood it creates. Although I agree that it doesn't break any great new ground. There's not a performer in it who's not hilarious. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's Mike Schur and Andy Samberg. What else do you need to know? And Terry Crews also. Terry Terry Crews, scene stealer. I had not seen him in anything before. He's wonderful. And it's a great ensemble. Yeah, no, no, do it. Do it. None of this was meant as um, backhanded compliments. Do it if you want to. Doesn't matter. Like, that's what I would say. The best thing about it is it just doesn't matter at all. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't have mattered if it had never existed is a kind of release in a way. <laughs> yes. All right. Namaste. All right, moving on. <laughs> all right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse day not. <laughs> Are you done? No. <laughs> All right. Um, My endorsement this week is a long article that appeared in in Vanity Fair quite a number of years ago, 2008. It's by Bruce Handy, and it's called Watch Like an Egyptian. So this, I came across the great title, right? So I came across this article because I was writing about a movie from, what, 1918, that had this little moment of sort of Egyptophilia in it, like a parody of an Egyptian dance. And I was thinking about what Egypt would have meant, you know, in the pop culture of 1918. Because I know that King Tut's tomb was as discovered. As if you, <laughs> as, as I do, unfortunately, every day of Fortunately, I can't <laughs> wait to read it. <laughs> but so as I was puzzling this out, I, I was thinking, wasn't King Tut's tomb discovered around then? But I think it was a little later. And sure enough, King Tut's tomb was unearthed in 1922, which led to this big, you know, fad for Egypt. So then why were people talking about it or, or thinking about it in, in 1918? And uh, and so then whilst Googling around trying to figure that out, I came across this article that made me wish, I mean, I don't know why Vanity Fair doesn't do this more often. It's just a great piece of popular history. It's essentially a history of Egyptophilia in, in pop culture, going in some ways all the way back to, I mean, there's there's talk about ancient Rome and how they kind of, you know, also created decorative motifs about the exotic Orient and so forth. And Edward Said comes up and Orientalism comes up, but ultimately it's not really a critique. It's sort of a loving history of, you know, the recurring love for what Egypt represents, which Bruce Handy argues is essentially um, some combination of sort of decorative beauty, but also eternity, right? That mm. that Egypt was how we would conceive of the eternal empire ever since ancient Rome, basically. And uh, and he traces how, you know, the opening of King Tut's tomb kind of affected American Egyptophilia, but also 
uh, Theta Barra's Cleopatra, which was probably the inspiration for the for the little Egyptian moment in the movie I, I'm talking about because it came out the year before, 1917. Then he talks about um, Egyptian-themed theaters and how, I mean, to this day, even if you go uptown to the Lowe's Theater on 68th Street, right, one of the theaters is the Egyptian with all the kind of fake um, hieroglyphics around the, the screen and so forth. And there's Grauman's Egyptian Theater was like a big 20s movie palace. So anyway, he, he just kind of traces um, the history of Egyptophilia and pop culture. And it's it's wonderfully researched, beautifully written, and just the kind of thing, if anybody's out there who's editing big, glossy magazines, like, run more things like this. It's oh, so here, good. Here. Yeah, if yeah. only we knew someone who edited any magazines. <laughs> <laughs> um, Julia, what do you have? Um, well, I, I, this might be the wrong forum to express this to you guys, but I'm I'm sorry to report that I've fallen in love with Mary Steenburgen, and I'm going to have to run away with her. <laughs> oh, because you saw Book Club? No, I haven't seen Book Club yet. I look forward to seeing Book Club. I listened to her interview with Mark Maron, and and just like, what an astonishing woman. I, I, I dare you to listen to this interview of Mary Steenburgen with Mark Maron and come away not having fallen in love with Mary Steenburgen and vowing to steal her away from Ted Danson. We can all go in on it together. <laughs> I, she seems really nice, like maybe she would go for it. Um, although she also seems very deeply moral and like she would not, but that's part of why she's so charming. I don't know, she just she just is a woman whose company it's delightful to be in. And of course her performances are like that. I mean, she lights up all of the things she's in, whether she's grimacing gamely along with Curb Your Enthusiasm. She had a wonderful bit role in togetherness the show the mark duplass show with melanie linsky um i think she's in last man on earth which i haven't seen much of since we maybe discussed the first couple episodes i think on the we show. did i think we did um anyway mark Marin uh is still a wonderful interviewer who can elicit interesting conversations from all sorts of people and uh i would recommend that you go listen to his interview with mary steenburgen uh, love her. Yeah, great endorsement. Okay, so uh, when we were talking about Tom Wolfe, uh, I mentioned that there every now and then you read something and you just keen with the desire to be able to read, write as well as uh, as what you're reading. And I felt that way sometimes with Tom Wolfe, but I read something the other day that just made me faint with this uh, feeling. And it was an essay by Hilary Mantel in the London Review of Books called Royal Bodies in 2013, the occasion being Kate Middleton. Ooh. It is an astonishing piece of writing. I mean, there's no one alive who you'd rather have write about the condition of being a royal in the age of mass media. And she takes us back to Henry VIII. I mean, she goes all over the place. And it's also a great example of an essay in the true sense of the word. She doesn't have a specific thesis or especially an axe to grind, really. What she's doing is just processing her thoughts out loud, but also utterly elegantly in order to help us arrive at a set of somewhat cogent but not close-ended feelings about this really quite odd phenomenon. And I just want to read a tiny bit from it, if it's okay. She says, Marie Antoinette, very near the top, she gets into the issue of Marie Antoinette, who, of course, is in some ways the, the you know ugliest precedent for utterly, totally privileged and out-of-touch people. Marie Antoinette was a woman eaten alive by her frocks. She was transfixed by appearances, stigmatized by her fashion choices. Politics were made personal in her, her greed for self-gratification, her half-educated dabbling in public affairs were adduced as a reason the French were bankrupt and miserable. It was ridiculous, of course. She was one individual with limited power and influence who focused the rays of misogyny. She was a woman who couldn't win. If she wore fine fabrics, she was said to be extravagant. If she wore simple fabrics, she was accused of plotting to ruin the Lyon silk trade. But in truth, she was all body and no soul. No soul, no sense, no sensitivity. And it goes on. And it's just, it's just extraordinary writing. It's an incredible performance. And I urge people to find it and read it. I saw some hot Twitter buzz about that piece. And, and that's uh, how it came to my attention. I, I, yeah. I'm going to go dig it up. You mean know. on the occasion of this new yeah. wedding? It was going back around yeah, it was, again? Yeah, it was just going around. A couple of people were mentioning it, including, I think, Lauren Collins, the wonderful New Yorker writer who listens to the show, I think, and who wrote a great piece about, I think she tweeted about having read it as she worked on her piece about this wedding. And I certainly follow her on Twitter, and that may be be, be, uh, where I saw it. I think what the essay balances is a need to think with a degree of critical energy bordering on contempt about the phenomenon while also understanding that at its heart, 
are actual human beings. We wouldn't care if these weren't real people. And if they're real people, they're human. And if they're human, they've been put in a position no human being should be in. And she gets into the ghost of Diana, which we didn't have a chance to talk about with Simon, whose shadow has to be cast over Kate Middleton and Meghan Markle. It can't not be, even if they escape that fate. Um, What this oddly public pedestal does to your humanity is a very real issue. I think it's an extraordinary piece of writing. It's called uh, Royal Bodies by Hilary Mantel. It was in the London Review of Books. Uh, Check it out. Can't recommend it highly enough. Dana, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. As always, email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest. We also have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. We've got an executive producer, supposedly this guy, Steve Lichtai. Anyway, for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll, we'll see you soon. <laughs>